Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Dory Tunstall. Elizabeth Dory Tunstall is a design anthropologist, public intellectual, and design advocate who works at the intersections of critical theory, culture, and design. As Dean of Design at Ontario College of Art and Design University, she's the first Black and Black female Dean of a faculty of design. She's a recognized leader in the decolonization of art and design education. This is actually her second time being on the deep dive. And I'm always excited, overly excited to welcome back a guest. And we're going to be discussing her latest book, which I was just raving about before we got on air. So I'm going to rave about it again, called Decolonizing Design, a Cultural Justice Guidebook. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am good, Philip. How are you? I am spectacular. The the spring has sprung. New York City is overly warm. It's like 85 degrees, but I'm going to take it. I'm going to revel in the sun. We are a sun people. Mm-hmm. Melanin is our love language. So <laughs> we are going to we're going to soak it up. And like I said, I was raving about the book. It not only is the content incredibly valuable. I think the fact that you call it a guidebook is prescient because this should be required reading in not just design classes, but in philosophy classes and business classes. This is, to me, one of those books that cuts across industry, cuts across areas of expertise, all of those things. So from that perspective, it's an amazing book. And then we were talking about the design and how beautiful it actually is. And and you thanked a lot of people, so I'm going to give you a chance to do that on air and thank all these folks that were part of making this come together. So again, shout out to the amazing Decolonizing Design book dream team of designers. So Sadie Redwing, Lakota Dakota designer, created the cover. And the brief for her is I wanted it to be wrapped in Indigenous love, and it definitely is. Canadian, Nigerian, Nigerian-Canadian uh, illustrator and Aggie did the amazing illustrations. And the brief for her was to find the emotional transition point in each of the chapters and do an illustration for it. And then the interior of the book is done by Polymode Studio, who's done lots of books, but uh, run by Silas Monroe and um, Brian Johnson. Silas is African-American. Brian is Mohegan, so a Black and Indigenous dream team of designers. And just thank you, MIT Press, for allowing me to pull together this dream team when they realized that they didn't have you know, Black and Indigenous designers who could support the decolonizing design and the design of the book, as well as in the content. Well, I mean, that is truly a dream team, and it it shows in the book. And, you know, clearly there was a focus and an intentionality from the very beginning of this project. So, you know, like I said, we've had a a conversation before. You have been a, a leader in this space, a first in this space, like we said in the intro, the, the first Black female dean, first Black person leading a design school. So I want to talk about why now? Why did you feel like this was the time to put all of that knowledge, all of that just lived experience into this book and project? 
Well, there's a culmination of a few things. In my ideal timeline, I actually said, you know, at the end of five years of being at OCAD University, that my research was being decolonizing design and I would like to write a book about it. But I didn't think I was going to have enough time. So as things, let's say, slowed down because of the pandemic, as things heated up because of the response to the murder of George Floyd and, and what you know I define as the reckoning where other people around the world learned about the lived experiences of Black folks every single day. There was a sense of urgency to get it down because I have, after the reckoning, there was all of these young people who were put in these roles, DEI roles, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion roles. And they're like, what the heck do I do? How do I get this institution to move? And then there was all these institutions that were calling me saying, what do we do? <laughs> we want to change and we don't know how. So Victoria Headley, who's the acquisitions, one of the acquisitions editors at MIT Press, just reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to write a book? It doesn't have to be a big book. It only needs to be about 30,000 words. The fact that I was running out of the ability to have the one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and institutions about what it is they do is like, oh, if I put it in a book, then maybe I'll be able to reach a wider number of people with things that I've been saying to people, again, one-to-one. -one. And so took six weeks, went to Paris, Ontario, <laughs> not to ever be confused with Paris, France, stayed at a friend's house and pulled, you know, pulled from my talks that I've been giving for years and things that I've been teaching in my classroom. And again, things that I had just been living, pull that all out and gave it, you know, textual form. Like you said, it doesn't have to be a big book, but it packs a, a powerful impact. <laughs> you know, it, it's weightier beyond its, its actual size. But I think a, a part of that is that this work is so important. And the reckoning that you, that you described, you know, the, the work of, of decolonizing pre-exist this most recent reckoning. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of frame just the, the world of, of decolonizing, you know, because from my perspective, someone who has had the pleasure of talking to people like you and others, I have noticed that it is a term that seems to be everywhere, right? And I think you mean it quite differently than where it is most often placed. <laughs> so I think in terms of decolonization, it's really at its simplest, the rematriation of land to back to the indigenous, the original indigenous people, the custodians of the lands from who it was stolen through the processes of colonization. And in the book, Peter Morin, who's a member of the Taltan Nation and one of my colleagues at OCAD, he he talks about like, and when we say the land, we're not just talking about the land and, the, you know, the soil and the surface and the things below. We're talking about in terms of indigeneity, it's about our language was connected to the land. Our sense of person was connected to the land. Our rituals and practices were connected to the land. So giving the land back is not just a transfer title, right? It's actually giving back sovereignty over the land and the resources of the land, but understanding that this is about indigenous peoples reconnecting to who they are and having the self-determination to determine who they wanna be in the future. And so 
in the context of design, it means two things. One, we tell a story about design as something that happened in Europe in the 1800s, and that anything that was outside of that was craft. <laughs> Maybe if you know museums decided it was worthy enough, it may have been art, but it definitely wasn't design. And so it's in many ways, decolonizing design is giving back to the center globally indigenous ways of making, right? That were in place and add value and meaning before being disrupted by colonization and in many ways and appropriated, right? Through processes of colonization. The other part of it is dismantling that myth of design is something that happened in Europe in the 1800s and nothing else mattered, right? And you do all of this work because again, if you're putting indigenous first and there's a way in which there's a reason why I say the first thing I say about what decolonization means is putting indigenous first is that it means in some ways, if design is the field that makes the possibilities of the world, gives it tangible form, then we need to prepare ourselves for indigenous sovereignty. So it also means how do we begin to understand indigenous ways of knowing and being and making principles and, and values in such a way that we feel comfortable um, living with, right? Living with those values as well, because indigenous sovereignty will come. And so you just want to be prepared to be a good guest, right? Within those systems. That response just gave me like three more additional questions. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> to kind of jump into one of which is what I've noticed in different spaces and, and when I say different spaces, I mean primarily like white spaces, that in many ways they would consider themselves to be progressive. And, and I don't mean progressive politically, like a political moniker, but they would consider themselves to be thinking about the world and how to make it a better place and on some level be willing to confront some of these things, right? At least in language and, and tone. What I'm usually left with, though, is the spirit of performance mm -hmm. rather than actual effort. And, you know, I, I, I think about, it feels recent to me, but last year I went to an event in, in Texas put together by, again, a cadre of folks that, again, consider themselves, we're thinking about the world and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And this shit was in Texas, right? Like Austin, Texas. And I was like, I don't see hardly no people of color. I definitely don't see no indigenous. And, you know, it's Texas, right? <laughs> and, and this was it was an issue for me and others, you know, not just me, others that have been guests on my show and that they probably going to listen to this and be like, yeah, I remember that shit, right? So I mentioned that very specifically because I'm curious in your perspective, if you're among the so-called well-meaning and they're willing to do so little beyond talking about what indigenous land they happen to be doing this event at, how do you push these concepts further, right? Because we're really talking about power, right? To a certain extent. So I'm curious if you've confronted that and to the extent that you have, help me. Because I, I, I just get angry. <laughs> I don't think that's effective. Well, again, you know, as my therapist tells me, anger demonstrates where's the boundaries of 
self-care and self-love. Now you don't want to sit in anger, but you want to use anger as a guide to understand where your boundaries have been violated, where you see something wrong in the world, and then you go into action. So for me, I mean, I talk about this a lot, <laughs> not... I talk about it less in the book because I didn't want to center whiteness, but I do mention it in the book and I mention it in two ways. I talk about, again, performative allyship, especially after 2020 and that sense of skepticism that, like I said, I was getting all these calls, people like, what do I do? What do I do? And it's like, well, you just could have done what we told you 20 years ago to do. But I guess the way I think about it is, is again, at OCAD University, we've been really effective in making change happen. And the effectiveness is, you know, like, again, when I first started, I was the most senior racialized person in the whole institution. So again, surrounded by well-meaning white folk. And a lot of the work that I had to do was to say, first of all, stuff is go- it's going to change. Are you ready for the change? Are you not ready for the change? Okay, here's some resources. This is what you should be reading. This is what you should be viewing. These are the conversations. So I facilitated conversations around like whiteness without white supremacy. You know, like there's a lot of work that we did for, you know, a couple of years to help people understand the change is coming where they fit in the change. And then the fact that the change is gonna happen, I could slow it down, but it's not gonna stop. And so there was a lot of anxiety. And I would say the place where the anxiety went away is after we had our first indigenous cluster hire. And that next year, the indigenous faculty came in and they saw what they were bringing to the institution, the kind of conversations already that could have been held. Once they saw that, they were like, this is worth the change. What we are gaining in adding these perspectives, what we are gaining in engaging in these conversations is worth the discomfort I feel in trying to figure out where I'm going to fit in this new reality. So So for me, it's a thing, my job has been helping everyone figure out how they fit in this new reality, right? No one knows what decolonization is or what it means. We're all trying to figure it out, right? The success that we have found is that we have helped people find where they fit. And I was just talking even yesterday about one of my professors, white male of certain age, Christian, whatever, One that I was really worried about when we, you know, six years ago was embarking on this change in terms of like, will they be able to adapt or not? And was a couple of years ago, they invited me to come to their third year crits and they wanted me to come because they wanted me to see. And so it was like how much they've changed and how much the program has changed. So, and again, let me just provide some context before I go into that. So what have we been successful at OCAD is bringing in true diversity. So we've had at critical mass, so we've had two indigenous cluster hires, which means just in the faculty design, that's not even including the rest of OCAD, but just in the faculty design, we have six full-time indigenous faculty members. We went from zero to six in five years, six years. We now have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven full-time black faculty members, zero to seven in five, six years. So we've, we've now have a layer of critical mass of diversity 
that now the that the faculty have seen what how much more they bring, how much more, and they're excited. So I say that to say when we go back to this faculty member, what he wanted to show me was how much he had been transformed through this experience of bringing visible diversity to the way in which we teach and think and do research, et cetera. And so one of the projects he showed me that he wanted to see was there was a Nigerian student named Ola, who because of the pandemic was actually able to do his work in Lagos, so in, in his hometown. And one of his projects is he was building a sort of branding system, communication system for a small business in Lagos that basically grilled the meat for you. So you would buy the fish, they would grill it for you, you can take it home. So this professor, again, was normally trained in like, you know, again, Bauhausian, <laughs> Swiss international style, right? Like that's their, that's their background. And so I would say he's like king of the grid, king of the Swiss grid. And what he learned from the interactions with the students is that the grid that they created to give unity to the design system was the grid based on the grill that was used to roast the meats. And so he is still the king of the grid, but now his opening, right, his aperture is open to the fact that it's not just about imposing the Swiss grid, it's like, oh, let's figure out what's the Lagos grid. Okay. What's the Shanghai grid? And so him finding his space is that like the, the knowledge that he had around sort of, again, Swiss international design is not useful, useless. It's still useful. You still need to create systems that provide a sense of uniformity to what it is that you're designing, especially if it's a complex system, right? But you need to put it in the context that is relevant to the community it's seeking to embrace. Yeah. And that's, so for me, that's a clear example, a clear tangible design example of what we're asking. White folks, I say the work of decolonization is the work of white folks. They're the ones who put the systems in place. They're the ones who benefit from the system. So the only way it's gonna crumble is when they begin to dismantle it, but they need the help of Black, Indigenous, and other POC peoples to see where there is pain mm -hmm. and exclusion in the system so that they know, oh, I need to tear this down. I need to do this. So their job is in many ways is to provide access to those systems. And by providing access is not just bringing people to the room, but actually helping them understand how those systems work. Because we've been excluded from the systems so we don't know how they work, right? Yeah. And then... Once they've sort of done that seeding space for others to lead and to transform, again, knowing they have a role to play in that, but they just have to share the power yeah. with other people. And the power sharing is oftentimes where there's stumble blocks or stumbling blocks, right? There's conflict resolution, another popular place where there tends to be a, a challenge with building coalition. But there's also a sense of relief, right? Like, again, you know, I think of the fact that if you, quote unquote, are the master of this corrupt system, and you know, like now, now you know it's hurting, right? Yeah. That it is, there's a sense of relief that comes with being able to not have all the responsibility. Not say just the responsibility of the corrupt system, but sort of saying that there's a lot of anxiety that comes with having to be the one who makes all the decisions. 
So the more you share that power, the more you share responsibility, right? Then the less burden and anxiety that you feel because you have people have your quote unquote side or people have your back, right? In that way. And that I think is a powerful incentive for why why they should engage in more power sharing, right? And there's also clearly when you when you cite the the growth of the faculty, the change in the faculty, the amount of time that it took, and and you know you're talking in terms of five or six years, not incredibly long. You know this is not generational work, but at the same time, I would say a lot of organizations don't have five six year kind of patience, mm-hmm. you know, like they should, they should have longer. I'm a 10, 25 year guy. It took us five years because we made so many mistakes. <laughs> but even that's instructive, right? <laughs> that there was space to make what you would call a mistake and still keep the mandate to drive change. Oftentimes, and, and I'm speaking in a more corporate environment than an academic one, you make a mistake, the mistake proves that we never should have done this in the first place rather than, oh, okay, a mistake was made. Let's keep, let's keep it moving. Right. Like my experience has been, oh, see, this is why, like, you know, like, like Dave Chappelle said back in the day, we never should have gave y'all money. <laughs> it's the same, <laughs> it's the same thing. I told y'all we never should have hired them, told y'all we never should have invested in this. And I think to a certain extent, when you talk about the reckoning, you know, one of the things we see is like these changes are not linear in the respect that for every reckoning, there's blowback. The difference I see, and again, I always say time travels in the spiral. So sometimes it gets very close to what it seems like before, but you're maybe at a different level. So again, what feels genuinely different about where we are now is that like, again, there are more indigenous black and other racialized people in positions of power. So like I say, when I talk about the cohorts that are, that we've brought in at OCAD, I say I'm leaving OCAD at the end of the academic year, which is in a couple of months. And part of the reason why I'm leaving is that I've brought so many amazing leaders who've taken up positions of leadership, right? Throughout the institution that I actually need to leave in order to give them more space to lead. You say that like it's just like normal. It is. <laughs> you know, that is not normal. Come on. We both know that ain't normal. <laughs> well, it, I say it's normal for me because, let's see, I have no imposter syndrome. That means if I'm in a room, I know because of the work of all my ancestors and those who come after me, like I'm the one in the room and I need to be the room. But it also, I feel like there's other rooms that I can be in. So, so people hang on to power and positions because they don't feel like there's another place that they can go. Right. And so for me, it's a thing where like, there's a lot of people who can do now the kind of work that I've been doing at OCAD. They have the book. Yeah. <laughs> I've given them the book to figure out how to do it. <laughs> they literally get the guidebook. So for me, the thing is to figure out like, okay, what are the rooms that I need to be in that other people aren't necessarily able to get into? And what I'm realizing now is that I can sit down and bring together a room of top leaders in a Fortune 100 design company and be like, you ready to decolonize? Let's go on the journey, right? So it is more 
important now for me to be in those spaces so that, again, those people that I've brought in leaders can do, continue to do the work that I have been doing at OCAD and do it in their own way. Like that's the, that's the trust element. You brought in, you understand the struggle, you understand like how the systems work. Now you can go in and, and make things better and continue to make things better. I mean, <laughs> and then I can go into these spaces where there aren't people, enough people there and help bring about the transformation in those spaces. Right? Yeah. And I, like I'm saying, I, I hear you 100%. <laughs> but what, what you're expressing through like the comfort in your own space mm -hmm. is revolutionary in most spaces. Well, it's not because we talk about it like in, in Mbutu, right? I am because we are. So if you understand when you walk into a room, you are not walking into a room alone. You are carrying the wisdom, resilience, whatever of the ancestors. You have an obligation to create spaces of liberation for the next generation. Then it's a thing where like, I guess I say, I don't know any other way to be. <laughs> no, I feel you. I like, like, like I said, I'm, I'm just, I am not befuddled at the words. Mm. I'm saying that I've heard these words from folks who never want to exit stage left. Okay. Like they, they stay because they want the power. I mean, I could go down a list of folks where I'm like, you ain't retired yet. <laughs> right. Like leave. Like it's literally time to move forward, right? And it's interesting in the DEI space in particular, right? Like I, I find this to be very common. And again, I'm going to, I preface it before I'm talking corporate shit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that like, you know, academia is a corporation. I, I run a $14 million budget. Oh, yeah. Right? Like I hire and fire people. <laughs> My, you know, like our quote unquote, not and not to put it in corporatized music, corporatized language, there are some differences, but there over the last couple of decades, those differences have disappeared more and more and more, yeah. right? In terms that, of the differences. Show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole nother conversation. But I think it's important because there's a way in which people think it's like, oh, you know, like you're in academia. It's like this, this and that. And it's like, no, I run a budget. I have to meet that budget. I have to hire and fire people. I have to mentor people. And all of the skills that I worked in, like, again, I worked in corporations. I worked in large corporations. That's why I can go back to large corporations and be like, let me figure out how, help you figure out how to change, right? That all of the things, the knowledge and tools that I learned working at Arc Worldwide and Saving Corporation. And we like, my project management skills from that experience were like the project management skills from the top five consulting firms, Yeah. right? My skills and presentation that I got a lot from academia, but how to do it in such a way that you get straight to the point that and the decision needs that needs to be made. I learned that in corporations. Those are the very same skills that I use to help facilitate the transformation at OCAD University. I use sticky notes and <laughs> brainstorming <laughs> techniques that I used as a consultant, right? We created personas to help identify what are our types of students that we have. Like all of those skills, those corporate skills were used in the context of academia, which is why I feel like the change was able to happen as quickly as it had, because 
I wasn't doing it actually in an academic way. In a corporation, you're like, what did, what did you achieve this quarter, right? So there was that acceleration that came from that blending of a corporate understanding of what it means to change, right? To engage in the levers of change in a corporation. But I just applied that to the content, the academic setting that I was in. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a brilliant way to be. And we need more of, of this of people feeling comfortable stepping aside Mm -hmm. because you really cannot be in solidarity if you are constantly centering your work, right? Well, and the thing that can scary is that you don't even have to have that ego. People will center it yourself. So like, again, me, part of my understanding is that, you know, like everyone refers to me as Dean Dory and there was a little bit of like Queen Dory-ness that was beginning to slip into people's kind of way of thinking about me, mm-hmm. right? And and I was like, I brought you here because I trust you. There's things I want you to know from an institutional history perspective so that you don't, you understand like the journey and you don't make any mistakes because you don't understand that journey or how we got there or who you're accountable to. Mm-hmm. But it's a thing where when I realized people were like, Queen Dory, what's your vision for what we should do? I was like, no, it's your vision. My job is to put together all of the structural infrastructure to help your vision come true. So if you're thinking it's my vision, I need to step out of the way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the beautiful thing that's happened just this very semester is like people are stepping up, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm pulling back and people are stepping up to keep things moving forward, which is a beautiful thing to be there and to, to witness, right? Because that's where your trust in them and in the institutional structures pays off, right? And that is, and that is in essence, part of the decolonizing journey, right? That you, you don't have the European modernist perspective of the clear hierarchical order that stays consistent in order mm-hmm. to get efficiencies, right? Like exactly. all, the, all the things, right? And I, I want to go back to a little bit when you're talking about land, Right. And the process of linking um, lived experience and, and who we are, our language and our way of thinking to the land, because oftentimes indigenous is like a blanket term for so many unique experiences based on the land that that they're on. Right. And so I'm um, I'm curious in, in your mind when you're when you're thinking about these relationships how do you continue to open that aperture to have that sort of conversation that is geographic specific while having the cultural norms that I think we've been, we've been talking about throughout this conversation? Mm-hmm. So this weekend, as I was at Louisiana State University earlier this week, and it was really interesting because they had their DEI team that put a land acknowledgement, but it acknowledged like the indigenous peoples. And so I went through and I used like, you know, native map <laughs> to look. I was like, there were very specific indigenous people here. What do you mean like generic indigenous people? And so I had a conversation to them about because it's like, oh, actually in, in this area is the Choctaw. And they were part of what's considered the five civilized tribes, right? Like that included the Cherokee and the Creek and the Seminole and the Chickasaw and whatever, whatever. And they were all forcibly removed from the lands between 1831 and 1833. So I was saying to them, 
that if you're going to do decolonization, it's about specificity. You are in the land of the Choctaw Nation who were removed, again, like that's pretty recent <laughs> time, right? That they were removed. Yeah, that, that wasn't that long ago. So what does it mean for you to engage with that understanding of where you stand? So for me, it's a thing where, and then maybe I'll talk a little bit about like the fact that like, again, being African-American and I, and I, in the book, I talk about the fact, like I am multi, multi-generational African-American. So like we're, we're going seven generations on one side, probably going back to 10 generations in the United States. Like that's before you start doing your like Africa tour. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And so what does it mean? And again, that is a multiracial heritage, right? So there's there's strains of indigeneity, there are strains of European, there are strains of African. But in the last 500 years, African-Americans, we've created this own unique culture that is grounded in, in the history and a sense of place. And it is that that complex history, right? Like, so again, we interacted and engaged with indigenous people. We, I would say like African-Americans historically, what makes us different from even other places where colonization existed is a level of intimacy in which we lived with Europeans. Yeah. Right? Like other places, I remember like a South African telling me that like, they didn't actually see white folks that often. Like the, the segregation was real. And I think about it in our families, even though it was segregation, is like we all knew the intimate, intimate secrets yeah. of, of white folks because we lived in their homes and we raised their children and we did all this sort of stuff. Still kind of doing all that as I roll around New York City. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what does it mean to have a sense of place? And I say, what does it mean to have a sense of place as an African-American, right? Because it's a thing where I've traveled to Africa. I've had African spouses. I've, I've spoken, in, you know, African languages, but I'm not an African, right? And I don't say that in a derogatory way. I say that in the sense of like, there's been a very rich history of interactions that have resulted in these differences. And these are differences I'm really quite proud of as a person. So... At the same time, again, I talk about decolonizing design is not 40 acres and a mule. And I wish I put that in the book. I do that in the talk, but I think it's really important <laughs> because one of the reasons why I think as I've gone around on book tour, indigenous communities have really embraced the book is that I flag the fact that African-Americans have been used as a wedge against indigenous peoples. So again, where are those 40 acres going to come from, right? Those, that's indigenous land. So we have to, as African-Americans, check ourselves because when I see all these places that is doing their diversity, equity, and inclusion hiring, a lot of them are putting Black women. And again, doesn't make sense. Black women are the most highest educated group, right, in the United States. Makes sense. Hyper accomplished. But if we in those positions are not looking to the fact that we, our ethos is let us into the system, not an ethos of let's dismantle the system, right? Decolonization is dismantling that system. Then we are complicit, right? In the erasure in some cases and in the call, the continued colonization of indigenous folks. And that's why it's really important, especially Black folks for us to be in true solidarity with Indigenous community and put Indigenous first. Yeah. And 
it's it's interesting because I, I wasn't planning on going down this road, but I think <laughs> no, because I I think what's really interesting is that these are these are conversations that I think people on the outside don't really think we're having. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when you when you talk about 40 acres and a mule, that's that's more than Spike Lee's production company. It's it's, a, it's attached to the idea of, you know, an unpaid debt. Reparations. Reparations. And, you know, there is a very vocal reparations movement that is, I'm trying to think of how to frame it. There is what I call like reparations through like economists and serious minded people, right? That have been advancing reparations as a kid. Mm -hmm. I knew that term when I was going to Kennedy King Public School in (laughs) Brooklyn in the 70s. (laughs) I didn't quite know what it meant, but they had this weird day, Block Solidarity Day, that I tried to get off from school. And my parents were like, please. (laughs) <laughs> you going to school every day, right? So there were all these sort of like red, black, and green and all these kind of movements, right? So there's that. But now there's like a very vocal, what I would call kind of rabble, mm-hmm. this thing called ADOS, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've had some conversations about them. Yeah, American descendants of, of slaves, right? Mm-hmm. They feel very strongly that any reparations conversation is solely a Black American conversation. Like it includes you, like, cause you have that history literally on this land, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but wouldn't include me because my parents are from the West Indies. Mm. Right. And I was the only one born here. My parents were not came in 70 on a Pan Am jet. Right. So they don't count, which I'm, I'm don't, I'm not like lining up for the money, but what I'm saying is that culturally I find it to be a very gross conversation. <laughs> Uh, well, and it is, and it's it's super complicated because again, if you're from the Caribbean, you were part of that same system. It's like how you got to the Caribbean. Yeah, we just we just got dropped off on boats at different times, right? And and again, there's always been that flow back and forth between the Caribbean and the United States. And like again, being in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, earlier this week is like Louisiana, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans. Those are Caribbean cities. Right. Those are Caribbean cities. So it's one of those things that, again, anything that seeks to divide is harmful. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And especially if it's being divided as a way to say, oh, you don't you don't deserve any money. As if, again, those from Africa or those from the Caribbean were not somehow involved with or harmed by the system of colonization and enslavement. Right. So. That part I always find disturbing and troubling. And yet I also, though, have to to recognize the fact that, again, I point out that I'm multi-generational African-American because especially being here in Toronto, where you have many people who are first or second generation coming from the Caribbean or coming from, you know, Somalia or coming from somewhere else to come to t- Toronto, the way in which they frame their relationship to North America as a place is very, very different, right? Very, very different from the way I frame it or experience it, or even the assumptions. Like I always talk about here that <laughs> for some people, the strategy for survival is to marry into whiteness. Oh, yeah. And I, I always say to them, it's like, I just have like one word for you, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Here you have the person writing about freedom having as his enslaved concubine, right, a black woman 
and yet <laughs> could still not recognize her full humanity. Absolutely. Right? So if you think that's going to be your solution, right? Like, again, if you are multi-generational African-American, you know that stuff don't work, no. right? You know that's not going to be the solution, right? Those are not institutional solves. Right. And those, so those are the kinds of things where I'm realizing there is a difference, like in terms of like how deep the history goes in the United States or, you know, like if you're Scotian Canadian <laughs> versus, again, first or second generation. But I think that, that, again, we were all affected by systems of enslavement. And it's, again, it's they moved us around. So it's not even a thing you can be clear about, like, who came from the Caribbean and who came from where or whatever, because they moved us around. If you started causing trouble. Yeah, off you went. In Louisiana, they put you on a ship <laughs> down to 80, right? <laughs> off you went, right? But I, I think, I think like when I read the, the very beginning of the book, you like you highlight like the United States experience does focus on, runs through this fulcrum of blackness, right? And when you pick up and you read Indigenous first, despite knowing that they were here first, and are still here, right? Like, I think that's really one of the little weird secret sauces is that a lot of folks, they refer to indigenous as if they're like some, like the dodo bird, right? Like, they, oh yeah, they were here, but then, you know, they got moved out and there are a few, they own casinos. And that's, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just like layman, right? right? right like right. They're, they're not actively part of most people's conversations. So it's, I think it's easy, and I'm not excusing it, to supplant their visions and goals and dreams and history with now what you feel you've earned. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I mm -hmm. hear that all the time. Like we were, we built this country. We made it what it is. We're owed this. Well, and that's the warning for me. Like that since that, that entitlement is dangerous. Cause like I said, where are those 40 acres going to come from? Yeah. We who know the breadth and depth of oppression and dehumanization, right? Like we don't want to be participating so openly and directly, right, in the oppression of another group. Yeah. Right. So it's a so I say chapter one is a call for solidarity, right, with the indigenous struggle. And here and you saw that actually, you know, like in the reckoning where here in Toronto on the streets, the chants were Indigenous sovereignty and Black liberation. Indigenous sovereignty and Black liberation. Those two things go together, right? I 100% agree. It's just, it's it's hard because, you know, I spend a lot of time in like dark places, you know, because I really do try to understand, not because I think their idea is worth understanding, but there's culture in the idea, right? And I see these common arguments come up, like, there'll be the, well, you know, some um, Native American tribes own slaves, right? So that's like a popular one. Well, and again, you have like the Cherokee disenrolling the the Blacks so that like they don't get part of the reparations. I mean, like, again, it's a thing. It's like, and there were Buffalo soldiers. Where you were the Buffalo soldiers? We were the soldiers who were going down trying to kill them as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think these histories are complex and worth really understanding and discussing rather than being used in like short form memes and YouTube clips to continue to pull each other apart. Right. Well, and that's the thing where like, you know, where 
you know, Vine Deloria Jr. saying that was the strategy. The strategy was to keep black folks excluded so that their energy would be like, I want to be in it. I want to be in it. I want to be in it. Right. Make them want to be Toby to go back to the roots reference. Right. Yeah. Make them want to be Toby. The strategy for indigenous folks was to bring them so into the system that they lose who they are. Right. That they become just pale Anglo-Saxon versions, inferior, right? Always inferior. And that was some people, some indigenous groups saw that as part of the strategies of how to survive. Because it's not like they didn't try conflict. They tried, I mean, this is the thing was like, they tried treaties, they broke the treaties. They tried conflict. Okay, treaties not working, let's go to war. War didn't work, right? Yeah. They tried moving away, like the whole movement to the West is like, okay, you can have East of the Mississippi, just leave us alone to the West. Moving away didn't work, right? So it's just a thing where if we are in solidarity with indigenous sovereignty, my belief is that that is our road to black liberation. Yeah. Because I would say the institutions that white folks have built, they have been designed to ensure Black incarceration, whether that's in systems of poverty or systems of drugs or the actual, you know, incarceration system in and of itself so that that there's no liberation from there. And we've been asking politely and not so politely for our liberation for a really long time. So maybe we just need to find new and different allies, because the reason why the wedge has been created is that they know if we as two powerful groups, we got together it's all over, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you, when you mentioned some folks want to be, they want to be Toby, that, that's a good opening for me to talk about DEI. Because mm. um, I'm keeping an eye on the time and I want to yeah, yeah, no make no sure we're, we're good. But, you know, because I'm, I'm glad to see like DEI is discussed at, at length in the book in a way that, I've, that I found to be, to be very thoughtful Again, you use very polite language, different from language I would use. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, DEI has not, in my mind, shown to be effective at all. And I offer that I think it is a little bit of people wanting to just get into the system. And to be quite honest, I view most of it like a racket, right? They, they want to, the one role that they know they're going to get, and not because they don't deserve other roles. Let me be clear. Like you said, a lot of these people are qualified people to do anything. But they know their way into the sweet, the C-suite role is through DEI. I've never taken on a official DEI position, mm -hmm. and I've done that by choice. And the reason why is that, like, if I want to do, put it this way, I get invited to be on a lot of boards, especially after 2020, right? And they're like, "Oh, so you're going to be on the DEI committee?" I'm like, "No, I'm going to be on the finance committee because to me." DEI is about the reallocation of resources. And so I want to be in the room where they're making decisions about what resources are and where they're going to go. Yeah. Because that's where you make the DEI impact, right? Is in what choices are being made, who are receiving those resources, and what are those resources, what is their impact, their intent? So why I feel I was effective at OCAD University is that I didn't come in in a DEI role. I came in as a dean. Yeah. And the dean of the largest faculty. So in whatever way the faculty design went from just perception, that's the way the university was going. Right. That's what people would read. The university is going that way because we're the largest unit. Right. And so so for me, 
And this is why I talk about the super token, right? Yeah. Because again, I'm a super token. And what I mean by that <laughs> is that I'm a person who, again, has talent that institutions want and they want it badly enough that they're willing to overcome their aversion to my identities. Hmm. And again, there's many types of super token. Anybody who's a first of anything is generally a super token, but it means that they've excelled in the system itself, right? So again, you look at my thing, it's like, okay, I have these awards. I went to Bryn Mawr, I went to Stanford, whatever, whatever, all these sort of things that says, oh, this is a person who can survive through the system, thrive in the system even. The danger of the super token which you alluded to earlier in our conversation is some of them, when they get into their position, they're like, well, it was difficult for me. So it needs to be difficult for you as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So they become the gatekeeper. The other thing is that even if they don't have that, that intentionality in those roles that the, the institution used them as an excuse. So it's like, oh yeah, if you have a PhD from Stanford, led the US National Design Policy Initiative, you too could become a dean of a faculty design, right? Which is like, who has that, right? Yeah, because they don't. Yeah, and they don't, right? I always say I want to be, when I, I feel like when we've made it is when I could hire for mediocrity. Yeah. For diversity and mediocrity. Like, I don't have to bring anyone who's super brilliant or whatever. They can just be, like, super mediocre. And that's fine for the system. That's all we need is mediocrity. I call it, like, the LinkedIn test. I go on LinkedIn all the time. And I'll look at, like, us, you know, brothers and sisters who have gigs. And, you know, it's, like you said, heavily credentialed, right? I'd be like, God damn, like, the fuck? And then I've like look at like SVP of something and it's like some white person. They're like, oh, yeah, I went to like Florida Atlantic. You know, I went to like, you know, and I'm not shitting on Florida Atlantic necessarily. But I mean, let's not pretend that Ivy League schools and top tier schools are considered that for a reason. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that reasons. Yeah. Some of it's bullshit, but it's the world we live in. Right. No one is out here saying that a Harvard person is the same as like, I don't know. Alabama state person, right? I don't even know if there's an Alabama state, so I'm making some shit up, right? But <laughs> which shows a lot of my own class and bullshit right. that I'm making these these kind of assertions. But they can come from anywhere and do anything. And so that's where white supremacy set up in place. Like for me, the thing that I didn't know as much when I began to write the book was kind of like how how pernicious white supremacy was in design. Like I knew it, but I didn't like the, I didn't have like the theoretical evidence to to really demonstrate it. Right. So like chapter three in particular mm-hmm. is really looking at like, oh my gosh, I didn't, re- I knew the Bauhaus was racist, but I didn't know the Bauhaus was that racist. Like yeah. they were saying, we want to design for white men who are Christian <laughs> and may have a little bit like, you know, they have traumatized bodies and souls because of the war, war one, but that's who we're designing for. And we were designing for to continue to contribute to the white master race. Like this is things that they were explicit about. And so you go to places like, again, I lived in Chicago, which is where the new Bauhaus was, right? So you go around and you walk around that city and you're told these Mies van der Rohe buildings are the pinnacle of architecture. And this Barcelona chair is the pinnacle of furniture. And all of a sudden 
the discomfort you felt, you know, in the sense of like, why? I know it's supposed to be, but it just doesn't feel right. Like what feels wrong about this? Then all of a sudden becomes apparent when you realize, ah, because it's it, it built into it was the sense of white supremacy. Yeah. Built into it from the scratch. So my non-belonging design out of reach, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, is because I somehow innately knew it wasn't for me, that they weren't designing this for me. And again, white supremacy, I always talk about like, you know, Jacqueline Batloria, shout out for that in the sense of like, white supremacy has a time and a place, Maryland, 1681. That meant that there are, it's not time immemorial. Yeah. So it had to be created and it was created in order to push down freed and enslaved blacks, indigenous folks and separate the true solidarity that actually existed between those groups and white European indentured servants so that they all would focus on that at least the white indentured service would see their alliances with the white aristocratic class. And we see that today, still today, right? Yeah. These these things serve no one. Right. And they're substantiated again. My surprise was just how how they were so substantiated through design. So it's like, why do I have to go to African designers or African Canadian designers to have a pair of glasses that fit my nose? Yeah. Right. Why is it that I have to straighten my hair if I want to wear my graduation cap and gown because it doesn't yeah. account for my Afro? Right. So there's all these ways you know, that the world of design, because it is based on white supremacy, right, substantiated through this modern European design aesthetic and practice that tells anyone who is not that you don't belong in the world, right? You don't belong in the yeah. world. And you have to hack your way through it. The, the, the Howard way was a lot of pins, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of folks spent their spent their graduation day looking for a shitload of pins to get that cap and gown on. <laughs> yeah. And can you imagine like the Bobby Pin industry at the end of like around May and June saying, yes, all right, this is actually our black, <laughs> you know, Black Thursday. <laughs> We've done it. <laughs> All them kids got to walk across that lawn and, and, and keep those keep those caps and gowns on. So yeah, you 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 see it everywhere, especially when you have to live in it. You know, yeah. I want to I want to get to the the final segment of the show. Um, I usually do two final segments, but I'm only going to do one, which is the drop. But mm -hmm. before I do that, you know, we could have gone on forever with this, and I and I want to reiterate just how essential this book is like, I, I can't, the more that I, that I'm spending time and seeing how, you know, a lot of these words are overused, like intersectional and the, the fact that we are not educated in this way and, and re-educated in this way is a real detriment and you see it everywhere. And I think the more we can get guidebooks like this and others and supplement the, the work and maybe supplement is even in the right word, replace the work, like I said, we need to dismantle some of these systems, the better off we'll be. You know, we didn't, I even get to the tech stuff and, you know, I call it the tech bias, my proxy for progress, right? Like <laughs> tech to just say that everything's going to be all right without changing anything. 
Well, and again, the, the tech story is like my biggest heartbreak because I, I love tech. And it, so it breaks my heart every single time when I realize it, it again, it's like even it's, it's liberatory origin. So like for me, you know, like Sasha Costanza Chalk's Design Justice, right? So that's one of the book I would say, please read that book. Community-led practices to build a better world. Like, so to understand, the, like, especially today, like the origins of Twitter, right, was for protesters to be able to communicate to each other outside of police channels for navigation, for like the the protests of, of the world, the World Trade Organization, right? So like the origins of that, right? The origins is liberatory. And then people on the side of that community, right? Take it. Cause again, part of that liberatory thing is we're offering it for free, right? We're offering it for people. So they take it, do a little bit, changing the code or do add a little bit to it, make it proprietary and then turn it into what Twitter is now. Right. And that's like, to me, that's like the ultimate heartbreak, right? The ultimate heartbreak. Yeah. It's crushing, you know, particularly with the current leadership quote unquote mm -hmm. leadership mm -hmm. of a Twitter, uh, which is actually no leadership at all. Um. Well, and then if you think about it in terms of like, again, like if you think of like all of the social movements, Black Lives Matter, all of these things, again, started from being able to circumvent the way in which the normal media would ignore our voices, ignore our perspectives to speak back to it. And then to, again, to see that liberatory impulse, right, crushed, right? That liberatory impulse crushed. Absolutely. It's um, absolutely heartbreaking. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking. So I, like I said, I want to get to the drop. And okay, yeah. my drop is actually a singer, old school guy, used to go by the name of Tarrant Darby. Um, <gasps> now goes by Sonata Matreya, and I'm, I'm highlighting his album that released in 1987 called Introducing the Hardline According to Tr Terrence Trent Darby. Um, there you go. <laughs> beautiful song, beautiful record. I, I just love these, these opportunities to bring back some music that we, you know, folks might not be as familiar with given the fact mm -hmm. that it's almost over 30 years old. But it is one of these albums that really opened up my aperture for, you know, the black experience in music. Um, he was part Michael Jackson, part print, but all himself, if that makes sense. And um, great record to listen to. It, it sounds as cutting edge today as it did then. And yes, yeah, sign your name across my heart. I want you to be my baby. <laughs> so that's my drop. Terrence Trent Darby. Okay, I mean, so I was going to be nerdy about it. You can I, do whatever you uh, want. Does it matter? Does it matter? Do whatever. Right. Okay, so so my drop is the Sasha Casanza Chalk Design Justice Community Lab Practices to Build a Better World. And the reason why, and I again, I feel it's important at this very particular moment to understand where technology is and is not our friend, right? So again, everyone's up in arms about artificial intelligence and chat and all these things and understanding anything, understanding, again, what I talk about in the book, that master-slave 
underlying relationship that defines our relationship to technology, that anything that is designed, right, that is seeking to enslave people and enslave people, you know, again, maybe around making it so that the price is so low for their services that they can't live, right, from doing what it is that they love, right? So I want to I want to drop that one because I think we, we really need to reflect on, quote unquote, the convenience of the technological services that we, we use and whether or not they're only furthering the oppression and enslavement right, of people. Absolutely. You know, you live in Toronto. I'm here in New York. I'm always amazed and saddened by the way. And this is just one example of that, the way in which people primarily Black and brown people are killing themselves to deliver bullshit to people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gross. And they actually had an article recently in the New York Times talking about there's a, there's an actual stat that the the more people order for things like DoorDash, like the higher those orders are, the least they tip. So they were oh, like, so they were like three hundred dollars sushi order and like a ten dollar tip. Um, see, <laughs> yeah. this is the thing where, like, again, I say this with a complete hypocrisy because now Uber Eats and I are like in in relationship with one another more so than. But I also tip really, yeah, really high. There you go. Because I notice it's only black and brown people who are delivering, and so I tip really, really high, much more so than I probably would. Um, if I was, you know, going to go out to eat. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hey, we all live in this, right? Right. Like, doesn't mean we can't use the thing and and complain. You know, I I always try to stay away from that. It's like when people like, oh, you have a cell phone. What's your problem? You're like, so what? (laughs) Like, we all use things, right? I order shit from Amazon and I can be like, Amazon sucks. (laughs) Right? Those are not incongruent ideas to have in one's head. So own own your Uber Eats and continue to tip. (laughs) You know, this has been wonderful. I'm glad we got a chance to do this again. Um, The book, Decolonizing Design, is spectacular. This conversation made my entire afternoon. Thank you so much for for joining me again on The Deep Dive. Thank you so much, Philip. Again, I love the engagement with the book. So I so appreciate your questions and commentary and dialogue, right, about it. So thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.